thank you very much uh, to uh, uh, Dr. Jean-Luc Anthony for trusting me with this very important mission of making sure that you have an hour of uh, total brilliance because I'm sitting here with General Demetrius, uh, whom I would not introduce because it would be silly of me to, to, to go through your bio. I just want to say that I have met a lot of smart men in my life, and I think you are really one of the smartest men I've met. And I think it's very, very important to, to combine that with your wisdom and your strategic view. This is uh, what we are going to try to do today, because Jared Petraeus uh, uh, likes to just look at the strategic angle first before we go into details. We sort of try to negotiate that. So, um, I think since the attention, everybody's attention nowadays is on Iran and their own sanctions. So it's appropriate to start with these Iran sanctions that the administration says it will be imposing. Will they be serious, General? And what impact will they have? Well, they will be serious and they will have a very substantial impact. Um, but first of all, let me say it's a pleasure to be back with the National Council. Uh, it's a great organization. Uh, and the turnout for this is absolutely wonderful. As always, we do thank you for doing my interrogation here today. Uh, no, no enhanced interrogation techniques allowed. Um, and congratulations on the recognition that you received yesterday. Very well deserved uh, honor. Uh, yes, indeed. And I want to single out Yasmin for her very impressive words and remarks, uh, and also her very kind reference to the CIA. Not an organization always referred to uh, in this particular grouping. Um, look, let's back up and, and look at what has transpired in recent years. Uh, the previous administration, of course, I was part of that uh, administration and the one before that, uh, first as the Central Command Commander, then as the Commander in Afghanistan, uh, always after doing the surge in Iraq, and then as the Director of the CIA. Uh, and there was a huge effort put in to reach a nuclear agreement with Iran, the so-called JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, and to be truthful, I think there was a hope that this would not just um, set back to a considerable degree the nuclear program of Iran and also end the plutonium path to a bomb and bring in inspectors and everything else. I think there was a hope that this would also lead to Iran curbing their very malign activities in the region, their support for Shia militia in Iraq, uh, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, etc., uh, and their effort to essentially Lebanonize uh, Iraq and Syria as well as Lebanon, in other words, to uh, have enormous power on the street through very well-trained and equipped militia forces. Uh, but also to have some of the leaders of those forces or connected with those forces actually in the parliament so that you have the kind of legislative clout uh, that Hezbollah has in Lebanon. Uh, sadly, none of this actually transpired. Uh, the malign activity continued. If anything, it may have actually increased uh, help because of the threat of ISIS in Iraq and, and to, to a degree uh, elsewhere. Uh, the missile program, the other big concern, uh, continued with the testing and uh, ever more dangerous and more accurate uh, missile systems in longer range. And ultimately, I think that led this administration to conclude that even though tech 
JCPOA that these, these other activities, again, were of such concern uh, that they had to reimpose the sanctions that had been put on Iran largely by Congress, keep in mind, uh, in the pre- during the previous administration. Uh, and so the final set of sanctions being reimposed uh, will take force on the 4th of November. Uh, this will be sanctions on oil exports, boards on financial transactions, uh, on the operations of ports, of insurance, and uh, some other areas. And these are going to be very significant. To be sure, the administration will be careful in how it allows these to come into force, probably doing some negotiating uh, with China, with India, perhaps with some of the other oil uh, countries that import oil from Iran, to be careful not to spike uh, oil prices. Our friends from Saudi Arabia, of course, are going to uh, increase their production to the maximum extent possible, as was done, by the way, back in the last time we had sanctions on Iran when I was the CIA director and, in fact, went to the Saudis and asked them uh, to do just that. So this is going to have a very serious effect, though. Uh, and again, I think it will be a greater effect uh, than was the case in the past when the sanctions were really seen as a vehicle to get agreement on the nuclear program. And here they are seen as, as a vehicle to get agreement or to get Iran to, uh, to meet these demands that were established by the Secretary of State in his speech to the Heritage Foundation back in May uh, and in his subsequent additional condition uh, that he uh, established as well. Uh, this is going to play out for a while. And, uh, I don't expect that we're going to see a rush to the negotiating table. Uh, there may be some initial back-channel communications, uh, but I would suspect it will be well into next year before you're going to see the Iranians so convinced that this is really going to bite in the way that I believe it will be the case uh, that they will actually be willing to come to the table. Let me dissect a couple of the points you made. Do you think uh, India and China would rescue Iran from being hurt, badly hurt? Because that's what the Iranians are saying. They're saying, we used the sanctions. We've got India committed to stay the course with us no matter what. China is probably going to take a little bit of a break. But what happens if these sanctions don't bite because we have people like countries like India? Well, the sanctions are going to bite again. Trust me on this, they really will. Uh, Let's keep in mind that what these sanctions do now is they tell a business in the world somewhere, uh, you you have a choice. You can do business with Iran, or you can do business with the number one economy in the world, but you're not going to do business with both. And that choice is very straightforward. Now there are going to be efforts to circumvent the sanctions. Uh, the EU is actually trying to provide a pathway to do that to a degree, to try to keep the JCPOA uh, in force and to keep Iran having some incentives to continue to uh, observe it and, and to be in adherence with the agreement. Um, China could actually use some other entity that doesn't really care about having to do business with the United States to do business. Again, what currency are you going to use? Are you going to be able to use the how many additional currencies can, can you actually trade? How much can you push across the Caspian Sea uh, to actually go up through Russia? How much can you push through Iraq, let's say? There will be all kinds of efforts, but these efforts aren't serious quantities uh, akin to the million or more barrels that are ultimately going to come off the market uh, from Iran as a result of the sanctions, and it could even, even be 
this time. But again, there's going to be care as well on how this is uh, imposed to ensure that this, the, uh, this reduction in supply is compensated uh, by additional production and export by the Saudis, by the United States. And for what it's worth, by the way, it's very important to note that the United States is now the number one natural gas producer in the entire world. And it's also now, very recently, the number one crude oil producer as well. That is quite a substantial achievement for a country that was supposedly at peak oil production less than seven or eight years ago. That's correct. Uh, General, let's try to forecast what would we might need in Iran reaction. Now, are they going to lie low and say, uh, we are going to stick around my time and, you know, till there is a new administration or till uh, there is uh, whatever, whatever their calculation may be. So will they lie low or will, or will they escalate uh, in places like Lebanon, for example? Do we think that they might cooperate, or let's say, in Yemen uh, with the Houthis? What is it? What are the forecasts? And do, do you think the administration has a scenario for each of the potential uh, repercussion of uh, the uh, decision uh, of sanctions? Look, I'm very confident that my former colleagues in the intelligence community and the Department of Defense and, and also our partners at the state have sat down and said, not all the what-ifs. I mean, will the proxy militia in Iraq start to shoot at our embassy as they did, as you may recall, during the Battle of Basra once the Prime Minister Maliki very short notice ordered two Iraqi divisions into what became known as the Battle of Basra, the charge of the Knights, and we had to really scramble uh, to get all the enablers over top of them so that they didn't get defeated. And ultimately, of course, we defeated the Shia militia. But the response was not in Basra as much as it was from Sadr City, and we were hammered uh, 12 to 15 volleys of, of, again, 10 to 15 rounds per volley throughout the day on the U.S. Embassy. I don't think that will happen. I, 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 you could have some, you could see some reemergence of explosively formed penetrators as very lethal Iranian-made improvised explosive devices that can actually slice through an M1 tank. You could see some action against our forces uh, on the ground in other places, other parts of Iraq, parts of Syria, uh, other places in the Middle East. But having said that, while these are all possibilities, and we may see some uh, of these, uh, I think Iran has to realize that um, there's, there is a United States president who, when Syria used chemical weapons, did respond and has done it twice and is not, I don't think, going to shrink from using force in response. And again, we're not looking for a fight. You heard Secretary Mattis. We were together at the Manama Dialogue in Bahrain this past weekend. Secretary Mattis was very clear that uh, what he was was firm, not provocative. And I don't think that we are out to provoke a fight with Iran. I think we are out to encourage Iran uh, and to really pressure Iran to start taking seriously the concerns not just of the United States and our coalition partners, but of our partners in the, in the Gulf uh, and so forth, at this very alarming development of activity by uh, Iran in terms of these proxy forces and the missile program, in addition to, of course, the nuclear uh, aspects of their efforts. So what if the revolutionary guards, the revolutionary guards decided that, you know what, if we... Uh, 
it's the end of the regime as we see it. Uh, so they do not want to reform because that would be their suicide. And they decided, you know, better yet, to take my chances, uh, go through Lebanon, make a problem as uh, Hezbollah, uh, provoke Israel. What this is, is this something that one writes off and it's not going to be a sad scenario at all? Or? No, I think you have to be very prepared for this. And I think that I know that our Israeli allies are prepared for this. Uh, I know that, again, various U.S. elements have, have certainly thought a great deal about this and made, again, a number of preparations for some of this. But let's uh, remember that one of the takeaways, by the way, from the continued after-action reviews of the war in southern Lebanon in 2006 is that Hezbollah and southern Lebanon in general suffered much more damage than we originally uh, estimated. They're still rebuilding infrastructure in some of these areas. Uh, and yes, they could do enormous damage to Israel. They could overwhelm the Iron Dome, David Sling, Patriot Integrated Air Defense System. Now, when you're talking about over 100,000 missiles, rockets, and other projectiles, clearly some of those are going to get through. Uh, but let me tell you that they are going to sustain horrendous damage. And there's actually, in public press, you're seeing uh, accounts that are leaking out of the preparations uh, what uh, the Israeli ground and air forces would do if this begins, because they cannot just sit and defend. They're going to have to take very rapid action. So reaction. Well, again, again, I'm not in a position, obviously, five years after leaving government to affirm or whatever what the U.S. is intending to do. Um, but again, that is another. And then there's one other uh, variable here that we haven't actually touched on yet, and that is the Iranian people. The Iranian people had their hopes raised by the JCPOA. They thought this was going to get Iran back into the global economy. Uh, it really didn't. Business firms always had reservations. They always had worries that the U.S. might reimpose sanctions. They didn't make the big financial investments again that, that the Iranian people hoped would transform the quality of their lives. Again, this is an educated workforce. It's an ambitious workforce, uh, very entrepreneurial, and they're very frustrated right now. And we've seen this because you remember the green movement and so forth, if you will, the demonstrations that followed the unsuccessful election. Uh, we knew who was behind that, and, we, and it was all largely concentrated in Tehran. Uh, the Revolutionary Guards Corps can roll out the besieged militia and these others, the pipe swingers, and clear the streets over time. This is now happening spontaneously uh, in many, many dozens of cities throughout Iran. Uh, it's not even clear who is actually organizing it. It appears that it is just the people themselves who are so uh, disappointed, so frustrated that they are coming out. And again, the regime has to consider this as well. I, I'm very hesitant to say that there could be some regime change or implosion or something like that, given the power of that regime. Again, keeping in mind that it's not just the Revolutionary Guards Corps, it's not just the Quds Force, it's not just the conventional forces that may or may not, again, be willing to turn their weapons on their own people. Uh, it's the besieged militia as well, and really the critical question is, at what time would they ever reach a point uh, that we saw in Tahrir Square, where all of a sudden the Egyptian military 
policy would that would be, I don't think. But again, I can guarantee you that this is a, a nightmare for those who are in the leadership positions in the regime. And again, one's hope is that this pressure and those worries uh, could lead to an Iran that is a, a, a responsible citizen in the Middle East rather than one that is undermining, trying to create the Shia crescent and all the rest of this. So that brings me uh, to Iraq. Right, so now uh, in Iraq we have a new government and it may be a very many of you in this room know uh, both the president and the prime minister who are bringing hope that the Hashtashabi, which is the paramilitary for those who what's it called in English, but anyway, it's called the Hashtashabi, they are still very central in blocking the formation of the government, the full formation of the government. I suppose the question is, Iran will continue to support the Hashtashabi, but what to do about them? I mean, what is it from your point of view? You're an expert on Iran. Well, first of all, I, 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 I share your positive assessment, very positive assessment of the three principal members of the new government of Iran. Uh, Dr. Barham Saul, the president, is known to many in this room. And by the way, he's one who's managed to navigate meetings with Qasem Soleimani and those in Tehran and meetings with, you know, Petraeus and the CIA or the general or what have you, and, you know, American ambassadors, Shia political figures, Sunni political figures, and obviously Kurdish political figures because he is an Iraqi Kurd. Uh, he was, in fact, the prime minister of Iraqi Kurdistan at one time and the deputy prime minister of Iraq when I was commanding the service privilege to do that. And by the way, he is an extraordinary figure beyond the great education in the UK and all of his other accomplishments over the years. He's the figure who, during the Battle of Basra, again, this very, truthfully, it was an impulsive move by the prime minister uh, to launch these divisions on short notice with giving us very little time to react. And the prime minister then himself went down to Basra and actually occupied one of Saddam's old palaces down there, and he quickly was surrounded by militia. This is so serious that his own brigadier general, the commander of his own security force, was actually killed uh, during the fighting. So this was a, a, a very serious situation. There was already a great deal of discontent with the prime minister at that time. I remember a meeting where we escorted Vice President Cheney to meet with the president of, of Iraq at that time. Uh, and we realized all of a sudden that it wasn't just the president, it was both vice presidents, so you had Kurd, Sunni, and Shia, and then both deputy prime ministers, but not the prime minister. And the message actually was, this is a couple of months before the Battle of Basra, the message was that uh, we have to start looking at options here relative to the prime minister. So here we are a few months later, the prime minister has ordered this operation, uh, and Barnum Saleh calls all the Iraqi leaders to his house uh, there in the Green Zone. And before any of them can start criticizing the vice president or voicing their concerns or frustrations and this starting going, he stands up, gets everyone's attention, the room is silent, and he said, this is a time to stand with our prime minister. So this is the kind of leader that he is, and he is truly extraordinary. Noting, obviously, the presidency in Iraq is a bit more uh, ceremonial. Uh, it's a convener-in-chief rather than the commander-in-chief, but it is not without power. And we saw that when Jalal Talabani uh, was the president, of course. Uh, 
uh, until, unfortunately, it was undone by Prime Minister Maliki in a series of sectarian actions that once again alienated the Sunni Arabs and once again tore apart the fabric of society that we had tried to put back together. So this is going to be a challenge, and it will be one of the top challenges. But by no means the only, again, if they can't drive down corruption and if they can't improve basic services, the Iraqi people will be very upset indeed. I have so many different subjects that are involved to have to go uh, leave that up, uh, those here and move on to Syria. But, uh, I want to say one thing about Iraq uh, being essential in the so-called Persian crescent or, or Shiite crescent that we are always talking about. So I would like you to address that point. Sure, we do Syria in a bit. Uh, I also would like to say that we at Beirut Institute are very proud that uh, Dr. Barham Salah has been a member of the board with us for, for seven, six to seven years. So uh, I'm, so I'm very, very proud to say Syria. Please help me out because I have a lot of detailed questions. I would ask you, General, to be shorter in this question. It's totally impossible. Yeah, I know, but I don't want to interrupt you because you've been upset and I don't want you to get upset. So, how do you see it? How do you see Syria? I see Syria as a geopolitical Chernobyl. It's a meltdown of a country uh, that has been violence, extremism, uh, instability, and a tsunami of refugees, not just in the neighboring countries, but all the way in the countries of our Western European NATO allies, causing the biggest domestic populist pressures there since the end of the Cold War. Uh, I see it as this incredible place where the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. Uh, and, and the alliances where you have, take the relationship with Turkey, we have some common interests with Turkey uh, when it comes to Syria. Uh, and we have some interests where we diverge uh, when it comes to supporting the Syrian Kurds, not the PKK. The Syrian Kurds who are in northeastern and eastern Syria and whom we have enabled, not just helped, but literally enabled with our precision air power, our intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets, our advisors, uh, to defeat the ISIS elements in all but about 1% uh, of that country down around Abu Kamal, uh, very near to the, one of the crossings around the Euphrates River Valley into Iraq. Um, look, we have... I, I find it very reassuring that Ambassador Jim Jeffrey has agreed to come back into government. Former Ambassador to Iraq, Turkey, Deputy National Security Advisor, Harvard, I think, and, and a Vietnam veteran. I mean, a really extraordinary individual. Uh, he is very ably assisted by Deputy Assistant Secretary Joel Rayburn, a retired colonel who is very much one of my guys over the years in various positions. A truly uh, a brilliant individual and a, and a great thinker and writer. Uh, and they have established, and with the president's support, uh, three very clear objectives, however challenging and attaining some of these will be. The first is, of course, the enduring defeat of ISIS. Keep that first word, enduring. This was established very intelligently by the previous Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter. So you just don't want to defeat them. You want to ensure that it is enduring, and that has a lot of implications for how you carry out your strategy and how determined and sustained your commitment has to be. Um, second is the removal of all Iranian and Iranian commanded forces uh, in, in Syria. Another very important objective, one that may be very difficult to achieve, but I think very valid. And then the third 
is a political resolution under the auspices of the United Nations process that is ongoing. So let me take those one by one. Okay. Um, let me start by saying, asking you actually, did the Russians win, uh, the Russians and the Iranians, did they win the Syria war with, because Bashar al-Assad is still in power? Uh, he is uh, refusing to change the, or to, 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 to speak the language of the constitution. Um, there are some argue that the Russians would like to pull out and therefore they need the U.S. Others say that the U.S. is sitting on that area of Syria where there is oil, so let the Russians sort of suffer and stay long and maybe it becomes their own quagmire. Where are we? The immediate demand of the administration is for the Iranians to pull out. Why the Russians come along with us on this? Very curious again because the Russians and the Iranians, of course, have been historic enemies, although they are now working partners, not just in Syria, but also perhaps in trying to circumvent oil sanctions using the Caspian. Again, it's a limited amount to do that, but they will probably try that. Um, but you're right that Russia, on the one hand, loves to destroy the world stage. Vladimir Putin and, you know, has brought Russia back. prices, and it was at one time the largest natural gas producer in the world, and usually the number one or two, uh, depending on how the Saudis were producing uh, crude oil producer and exporter. Um, it, but in truth, it has enormous uh, challenges, and, and I think it's, it's you know, accurate to describe sometimes Russia as a, a gas station with guns, uh, or maybe a gas station with nukes. Um, but it has very, it had, was the critical element that sustained Bashar al-Assad when he was most recently teetering on the throne uh, in Damascus. Uh, the Iranians, having done it previously with the Quds Force advisors, with other Shia militia from around the region, and obviously with Lebanese Hezbollah, um, you know, have they won? Well, it's not over yet, uh, for starters. Uh, they have certainly shored up Bashar al-Assad, a murderous dictator who was responsible for the killing of 500,000 or more of his own people and for the displacement of half of the entire pre-Civil War population, half of that which is outside the country. Uh, so he has presided over the worst humanitarian disaster uh, in, in recent decades. Uh, again, how much can we get the Iranians out Time will tell, and we are going to have to show again a sustained commitment. Uh, and we cannot sustain, we cannot call, allow that to be called into question by occasionally saying that we, you know, sure wish we could get out of here. Um, again, we have to have sustained commitments, by the way, not just there, but also in Iraq, also in Afghanistan, also in the Horn of Africa, North Africa, and a variety of other places, because one of the big lessons of the last 17 or 18 years of war is that ungoverned spaces in the Muslim world will be exploited by extremists. And number two is that what happens there doesn't stay there. It tends to skew this violence, extremism, and instability in, in refugees and way beyond neighboring countries, and therefore you actually have to do something about it. I was in Sochi uh, about 10 days ago at the Valdai Club, and uh, the language and uh, the, the tone of what I heard on the military level level was very tough because they were very supportive that President Trump had said, I want to get out of 
of Syria. So that's possible and then came the team and made clear that no, the US is staying in Syria. And now this is why I have highlighted uh, very much uh, the importance of the policy that has been stated now and the team uh, that is going to implement it with Secretary or uh, National Security Advisor Bolton and Secretary Pompeo very heavily supported and I'm also obviously Secretary Maddox. Indeed. And so they're saying now the language they're using in Russia, they're saying, um, uh, you know what? You want us to get help you get the Iranians out of Syria? You get out first. You're, you're the ones who are legitimately here. And, you know, we're not going to help you with getting the, uh, the Iranians out if you don't uh, collaborate or cooperate with us. And then I felt that they're really sticking by Bashar al-Assad. Yeah. 
seen in Crimea and the Donbass and Ukraine and, and elsewhere. You have sanctions imposed on top of all of that. Uh, he's got to figure out how he gets out from under the sanctions, how he reduces the cost of these overseas adventures and all the rest of that. Very quickly, last good question on Syria. Is, is there a political solution? Is it feasible? Is it possible? Soon, late? Uh, just a very quick answer to that because I know it's a complicated one. It, it, it is a complicated one, and I, but I think that it is, it, again, essentially to commit political suicide at some point in time. And that's always been the challenge, because from, the, from very early on, uh, there was no real alternative for what do you do with Bashar. Uh, no country in the world was going to take him. Uh, maybe Russia would, but do you really want to go spend the rest of your life in Russia if you've been living in Damascus uh, all your life? Um, so, no, I think this is very, very difficult. Uh, but that's why it may take a, a considerable amount of time to play out But that doesn't mean that we should make it easy. General Petraeus, again, back to when we were together at the Manama Dialogue, we listened to uh, Secretary Mattis, and I think Secretary Pompeo said the same thing yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday. They were speaking about a formula, at least Mattis was speaking, sorry, Secretary Mattis, a formula for Yemen. Uh, you've heard uh, what she's saying. Basically, uh, we need at least to stop. Or, uh, or, or, or um, uh, priorities uh, have got to shift a little bit. And as you know, we spoke of securing the borders, number one. Then he also spoke of a formula uh, for the Houthis to stay where they are, sort of almost an autonomy. Can you shed some light on how you heard this administration's new position on Yemen? describe it as still somewhat evolving. Um, Secretary Mattis has said, of course, compromise, not combat. Uh, must enter the negotiations in November. Um, Secretary Pompeo has asked that there be no more bombing of urban areas uh, and so forth. And so this does continue to evolve. And look, I'm all for seeing this in, in another humanitarian uh, catastrophe Let's remember how this started, uh, because I was around for that, uh, and then think about what the implications are of that on what it is that we're trying to do now to get everyone to the negotiating table. This began when the Houthis did not get, the Iranian-supported Houthis did not get at the ballot box the results that they wanted. It started when they then did not get the results they wanted at the negotiating table. And so they brought out the AK-47s and RPGs, and they used the, the force, uh, caught the government, the elected government uh, of Yemen by surprise. Sadly, they had the previous president sort of in their orbit as well, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, and all of a sudden, you, you, you have the elected president and most of the government literally run right out of the country. And the Emiratis and the Saudis and others sat down and said, you know what, this is not one time when we're going to turn to the Americans and say we need you to do this, we're going to do this on our own, and we're going to support our partners and allies in that country who have just been, again, run out of the country uh, by Houthis with considerable weapons and 
also captured more from the legitimate security forces. Um, they've shown no willingness to negotiate so far. Uh, they have, in fact, pursued very provocative actions, shooting missile after missile. It's now many dozens and dozens of missiles uh, into Saudi Arabia trying to hit uh, populated areas uh, around Riyadh, airports, and so forth. Uh, clearly, this has been supported to varying degrees by Iran. Uh, and again, how are you going to get them to the negotiating table? What is the pressure that it's going to take out? Uh, and, and again, from the north, let me just say one other thing here. Um, a lot of people used to criticize the Saudis for having a defense policy that was best described as fighting to the last American. Uh, think about that. And then, you know, they decided, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to pursue this on our own with, with the Emiratis and with others that we can gather for this, this purpose. There's been a lot of tough learning. Uh, the Saudis have, have been the first to acknowledge at various times uh, tragic cases of civilian casualties. I personally believe that the campaign should have been much more accurate, much more precise. Perhaps we should have helped with targeting uh, from early on rather than uh, providing maybe refueling 20% of the aircraft or whatever it is. Uh, but we are in a situation now where clearly the humanitarian aspect of this particular war is, is again, as I described, catastrophic. I agree with the, the initiatives to try to get everyone to the negotiating table. But what do you do if the Houthis don't come to the table? Right? That is the challenge. Uh, did you hear, because I don't remember I heard in Secretary Mattis' presentation on Yemen, I didn't hear a big push against Iran uh, and their support of the Houthis. Did I miss it, or is this being put on the side for the time being? Saudis, the Emiratis, and, and 
Congress should be very prepared uh, to go to the negotiating table if that's possible. But I don't know if there has been sufficient pressure on the Houthis, uh, given the actions that they have continued to take and indeed the support uh, that they continue to get with varying degrees from Iran. So let us talk about the Saudis. Let us talk about the current state of American-Saudi relations and whether the long-term relationship, nation-to-nation, can survive the crisis that is happening now. You know, it's called, you know, sometimes people are speaking about values and interests. Uh, and they, uh, like, you know, what does you see this going? Well, I think over time uh, that the uh, interests will outweigh concerns over values, but this is a serious crisis, make no mistake about it. Uh, former Secretary of State Jim Baker, I think, captured this perhaps best of all in a piece that he wrote, I believe, in the Washington Post and the New York Times, where he talked about precisely what you just raised. This is, it, this is a huge collision between our values and a belief in human rights and, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and this is a brutal a crime and a colossal mistake um, that obviously has trampled those values. But on the other hand, you have decades of interests dating back to the meeting of uh, King Abdulaziz and, and President Roosevelt. Uh, and we've been through all kinds of crises during this time. I mean, we had, we've had the uh, oil embargo in 1973. Uh, we've had the Iran-Iraq war and the ramifications it had. Um, we obviously had the invasion of Iraq. I actually had the invasion of Kuwait first, then the, uh, the decades later, our invasion of Iraq in 2003. Again, there have been lots and lots of points of serious friction uh, in this relationship. But at the end of the day, again, uh, interests tend to prevail. And right now, uh, until this incident, the principal interest in the entire region seemed to be converging around opposition to malign activities by Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was doing something that no other uh, dynamic could ever do, which was not only to bring uh, the countries of the Gulf together, but actually to uh, promote a certain degree of relationship between Israel state because, again, the most significant uh, enemy in the region for many of those countries uh, is, again, Iran. So we hear that uh, the pressure is on in order to Yemen, if you will, and pressure uh, the Saudis on Yemen. This is what we're reading these days. And also we hear that the issue of Qatar is coming in, uh, in, in the equation, at least from the point of view from, from the administration and others, that you've got to fix that relationship right now. It's time to get, get it back on Obviously, I would love to see that. I mean, you're talking to someone whose forward headquarters when I was a commander of Central Command was in uh, an LED air base outside Doha, Qatar. Uh, you're also talking to someone who does understand the frustrations of some of Qatar's neighbors, though, and I've expressed these to uh, the current Amir to shape to me. Um, and, and also to the Prime Minister previously, uh, Hamid bin Johnson. In fact, I've recounted to you where I went in to see him one time, and I said, uh, Prime Minister, you know, this morning you gave us a check for $100 million for our new Central Command Forward Headquarters, and we are deeply grateful, Shukran, New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. 
this evening, Al Jazeera, supported by the government of Qatar, beat the daylights out of the United States on television. So which are we? Are, you, are we your defense policy or are we your whipping boy? And so these are the kinds of frustrations. But is this the policy? policy? And if, I, if it is the policy of contradiction, well, how do you, how do well, we not say it's you got to have dialogue? And let's keep in mind that a lot of this, some of this at least, is past. Uh, and I think Sheikh Tamim very much has up talked to the Amir about these issues. Uh, personally, one-on-one, or, you know, a couple of his advisors, I've done the same with Mohammed bin Zayed, the Crown Prince of the UAE, and with Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think these are resolvable. Uh, the, the problem is that these have become quite emotional rather than just sort of irrational discussion, and that's very difficult. So I do hope uh, that out of a terrible crisis and a terrible situation, can come some good, that this can be a catalyst uh, for some positive developments. Let me mention one issue, though, that has not been raised in many of the analyses, which have tended to focus on the relationship between the U.S. and the kingdom or what have you. Um, There are other relationships, and and those have to do, obviously, with the business community. Uh, And I think a, a real challenge now is going to be Will foreign direct investment uh, go down further? Because, of course, it had already been reduced uh, because of some other concerns and issues. Uh, or can it start climbing back up, which is what is desperately needed by the kingdom to realize the vision 2030 that I know was described uh, earlier in this conference? Um, and I've always said that we want vision 2030 to be realized. I mean, it, the kingdom is so central. It is the keystone uh, in certainly the Gulf region of the Middle East, if not the entire region of the Middle East. When you look at how important the relationship with Egypt and Jordan and some other countries that are not in the GCC uh, are as well. So, again, we want to see uh, further social and religious uh, moderation and reform. Uh, we want to see diversification of the economy beyond just the export of hydrocarbons. Um, we want to see uh, continued uh, Saudi involvement in education around the world, taking advantage of that and then bringing it back uh, and being able to build different industries from those that are just dependent on uh, oil and gas and, and, and related liquids. Um, that is a concern, uh, and I think that it it frankly is incumbent on the kingdom uh, to demonstrate that there is the, the rule of law, if you will, is what ultimately what it comes down to, the governance, the consistency, the, the kind of investment climate uh, that will attract lots of outside investment, uh, or if there will be further concerns uh, in the wake of this terrible incident, uh, that will cause them to pause and to look elsewhere for opportunities for investment. Because, again, keep in mind that the whole reason for Vision 2030 um, is a recognition that Saudi Arabia is running out of money. In fact, when the oil was still priced well below 60, our calculation was that Saudi Arabia had about six or seven years of all the different sovereign wealth funds uh, before they literally ran out because of the deficit spending. Now, of course, you can go to credit markets, and they've won a couple of times, but the rating has gone down a little bit. So these are the, beyond these 
terms of dynamics that I am concerned about. As one who spent a lot of time out there, has historic relationships. Those have been obviously really shaken uh, by this incident, and we should be very clear about that. And I thought General Mattis, uh, again, was quite forthright in what he said uh, during his remarks in Panama. I can only think this happening at all. I mean, was, was this over now? I, I, I tend to think certainly not coming soon to a theater in Europe. So, yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, I should be looking at Prince Georgia Faisal uh, and asking for his insights. Uh, but, you know, our sense has been that it was really maybe from early on that there would be such a requirement of transparency, which has not been a characteristic of Aramco. Uh, that there would be a shrinking back from that as they really contemplated the details of what would have to take place to attract, you know, one or two hundred billion dollars uh, for a ten or twenty percent investment in the world's biggest oil company. Back to uh, uh, that situation, as uh, Istanbul situation, and this thing on the consulate. Turkey seems to be having its own policy gripping, if you will, information and trying to get back in. I mean, you know, some, some of us believe that Turkey is uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood Central and their relationship with Qatar, uh, from the point of view of many, falls also into that. Uh, and of course, the, the rift with Qatar to some degree pushes Qatar into the arms of the, of the Turks. Um, again, there's always a chicken and an egg, and you know which came first, and so forth. Here, to some degree, perhaps with Iran as well. So, again, another reason to try to uh, to solve that particular dispute. But Turkey has, it certainly appears, as a President Erdogan, having now, after several years of enormous effort, um, been able to consolidate the power of Turkey in the presidency. Because, of course, he could no longer be the prime minister, so it had to gravitate to exactly. where he is, yes. Um, and, you know, he always he used to enjoy, again, striding the world stage as the embodiment of political Islam uh, at its finest. Uh, and, of course, he was supportive of the Muslim Brothers in, in Egypt and of political Islam in some other areas as well. And let's, you know, be very clear, again, I I've been a little bit blunt here today, but you have to understand that soldiers, soldiers have no alternative but to be direct and blunt. Um, let's recognize that the biggest fear of many of the leaders in the Gulf, and again, I'll see if Prince Turkey nods at this, I hope, uh, is not Al-Qaeda, it's not ISIS, um, it's political Islam. They say they, it's not even Iran. They say they can see Iran. They can see ISIS. They cannot see the creep of political Islam until it has them by their political neck. And when it takes over, it is very difficult to dislodge. So that is the root of a lot of these concerns. But again, the President Erdogan wants to be seen as the leader, certainly of political Islam and maybe of the Islamic world. And he's quite enjoying this moment yeah. uh, in the sun. And as you see, drip, 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 dribbling out what it is that they have, uh, and causing, frankly, the kingdom to twist a bit in the wing as a result, uh, given their opposition to that form of political Islam and Muslim Brotherhood kinds of, uh, of, of, of governance. Yesterday, 
facilitate 
ultimate meal in this century or the ultimate meal. Uh, and so what would that be? Well, it would be to avoid creating additional obstacles uh, to such a meal, and it would involve promoting economic vibrant activity in, in the West Bank uh, for the Palestinians, helping them shore up their governance. You know, a terrible loss that, that the Prime Minister who gave us so much hope uh, departed. But again, can we find other individuals like that to help, even as we are going after the Palestinians, uh, to no longer promote violence and, and uh, essentially rewarding uh, criminal activity, murder, wounding uh, of Israelis? And as you well know, of a West Point graduate, uh, an American who was killed, uh, Taylor Forbes, and my very good friend uh, in New York, Sandra Gerber, has has been a key figure on Capitol Hill and elsewhere in getting the Taylor Force Act approved, uh, which penalizes the Palestinians in terms of aid uh, if they do not stop what's called pay for a slay. Um, but again, so these are the kinds of initiatives I think that you should be pursuing. Now, there are some novel ideas that are being talked about, uh, and I think you were there when I asked the uh, former Egyptian foreign minister, now the Secretary General of the Arab League, and his predecessor is the Secretary General of the Arab League. What about some of these ideas where you take some unoccupied land and the Sinai, you extend it out from, from Gaza, you create an airport, a seaport, an industrial area, um, empower it with lots of money, you create essentially the Sinai Riviera, and you try to attract Palestinians, give them opportunities there, give Gaza an outlet uh, to the world there, controlled by the Egyptians, presumably in some fashion, but perhaps over time again. So, and, you know, you get different answers candidly, and, uh, and I'm keenly interested, as uh, are many here, if not all here, as to what the contours of this potential deal might be. this afternoon uh, to hear something about that. But again, I'm not in certainly not. Certainly not. I want to give you the chance to conclude exactly how you like to handle this, not to stay with the specifics, but go back to strategic thinking. This administration, even previous administrations, there's always been this worry about the United States not staying the course. Uh, people say, uh, you know, they, they constantly get out and they, they don't have lasting friends and uh, you, know, you can't trust the U.S. and the Americans. They put their, you know, everything, everything is terrible yeah, in a way. I hate to use it in the way it's said, but they call it the legacy of betrayal. They've been friends, but then suddenly dropped friends. Uh, tell me, first of all, you will tell me your reaction to this point, of course. But tell me, Jared Petraeus, what do you see coming from the administration, the Trump administration's policies towards the region altogether? We have had the Obama administration saying we did from behind, and uh, we know that there's been a lot of dismay uh, in the Arab region uh, with this administration, with the previous administration. And now we, we know we, there is a crisis that probably, as you correctly said, might 
overcome uh, with transparency and accountability, but along also with some changes. Yes. Well, but, uh, yeah, this is a very, very serious incident. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's this quote attributed to Talleyrand uh, when he heard that Napoleon had personally executed uh, a particular prince, and, and they said, you know, what a terrible crime. And he said, it's worse than a crime. It's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Talleyrand didn't actually say that, but it is attributed to him. Uh, that does apply in this case. Yes. Um, and again, a, a real tragedy. And by the way, someone who spoke at this conference, uh, and a friend, and a friend, and a friend, and a friend, and So, um, look, but I mean, the question you had was um, really the root of the question is American inconstancy or lack of dependability or unwillingness to stay the course. And I think that is a hugely important point. Um, the fact is that there are reasons for this questioning of uh, American will that at various times, and of course the United States, again, goes back and forth between its realist and idealist impulses and so forth as well. Uh, we have periods where when we've had a long period of war in Iraq, Afghanistan, let's say it's understandable that an administration will come into office and want to emphasize nation building at home rather than abroad. So I think all of these uh, impulses here are understandable. But I do think that you are right to highlight the fact that we've got to be keenly aware of the messages that it sends to our partners and our allies around the world. Um, and that if you have a red line and you do not act when it is crossed, obviously that calls into question uh, again, uh, the national credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is crucial because maybe if I end, I go back to what I started a bit of, which is these lessons that we should have taken from the last 17 years of war, which start with number one, uh, ungoverned spaces in the Middle East will be exploited by extremists. Number two, you have to do something about it because what happens there doesn't stay there. It tends to cause problems in the region and even elsewhere. And number three is the U.S. generally has to lead because we have the capabilities, the capacity uh, militarily, but in other respects as well. Uh, that is, many times all of our possible partners and allies put together. Uh, let's keep in mind that the U.S. defense budget is far more than China's, three times China's, and is far more than uh, all of China and the next 10 or 11 countries put together. It's more than double what all of our NATO allies uh, are spending, and they should be spending more. I agree very much with the administration on that. But in any event, we have to leave, but it should be a coalition. We shouldn't go it alone. Churchill was right when he said that the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without them. And we especially want not just our traditional NATO and then other, in a sense, Western allies. We want Muslim countries. This is an existential struggle for the Islamic world. This is a fight for the heart of Islam. And by the way, nowhere is that more pronounced than in the kingdom. Uh, where you have, of course, the king, who is the keeper of the two holy mosques, in addition to other titles. The fourth lesson is that you you have to understand that you cannot counter terrorists, extremists like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, with just counter-terrorist force operations. You have to have a comprehensive campaign. All of the elements of the comprehensive civil-military campaign that Ambassador Crocker and I were privileged to lead during the surge in Iraq, but, and it's a huge but, 